0: Hi, I'm Cindy Simmons, and this is See the World with Cindy Simmons. The whole goal of this podcast is to take you on an eye-opening journey and see the world through the lens of animal rescue, care conservation, exciting family adventures, and interesting people. The response to our podcast has been overwhelming, and we decided to put this episode into the hands of the listeners. Today, we're answering your questions from listeners around the U.S., ever wonder how animals communicate with each other or how SeaWorld recreates cold habitats and warm climates? These questions and more will be answered by Dr. Christopher Dold, Chief Zoological Officer at SeaWorld, and maybe even a few special guests. Can't wait to dive into these questions. All right, so welcome, Dr. Dold. How are you?
1: I'm wonderful. Thank you very much, Cindy. How are you today?
0: I am great, and I am happy that we are doing this super fun episode and that you are here to answer all of the questions. But before we get to our mailbag of questions, I need to get all of the scoop on you. Start from how you started and got to where you are now. Like, I want the whole scoop.
1: The whole scoop. uh, I'll try to be, I'll try to tell the story as quickly as I can. (laughs) So um, uh, I So my name's Chris. I, I, am the chief zoological officer for SeaWorld and that is a title that not many people have. And in fact, when you say it, not many people know what that is, but that basically means that I lead and support all of uh, the zoological programs for SeaWorld and Bush Gardens, uh, both of our Bush Gardens parks. If wherever we have animals, whatever we're doing with those animals, that, um, that's the team that I have the privilege to lead and support. So, um, I came to this job though, um, starting as a kid, like many of the the folks who come into our parks today, right? I, I just came to SeaWorld for the first time when I was nine years old and I fell in love with dolphins and whales and sea lions and everything. And I decided once I saw that animal, that was what I wanted to do. I didn't know exactly how I wanted to work with those animals, but I knew I was going to do it. Um, so I dedicated all of my energy, um, over the many years of growing up to going to the ocean, seeing animals, and ultimately uh, getting, a do- getting a job as a dolphin trainer. That was the first moment where I thought I've made it. It wasn't at SeaWorld, by the way. It was at, it was at another cool place. Um, and then uh, after I did that for a little while, I became interested in animal health. So I went and went back to school to become a veterinarian, and I got my veterinary degree. And then I, then I came to SeaWorld. Uh, a couple of years out of veterinary school, I was offered a job at SeaWorld here in Orlando. I started as a staff veterinarian um, and um, worked with the animals, worked with the teams to care for the animals for many years. Uh, and then eventually uh, I took the job that I have now, which uh, I'm very proud of. Unfortunately, it means I spent a lot of time in an office and a little bit less time with the animals, but still a great place.
0: Dr. Dold, I gotta tell you, Um, When we did our dolphin episode uh, last time, and i started talking about dolphins that is what i wanted to do when i was little and is it like an 80s girl thing or something because i am sure that you hear from 80s girls all the time that that's what they wanted to be was a dolphin trainer
1: <laughs> yeah well listen i was born in the 70s uh and i i'm a guy and uh so i don't know that it's girls uh guys um but there's definitely something about these these animals these incredible animals and i know it's still true today it's it starts as a dream job for a lot of people, and, um, and not everybody makes a career out of it, but boy, it, it couldn't be more rewarding. The animals, the people, the mission.
0: I have to imagine when you are at a party or a wedding or something and people find out what you do, they have to just completely just barrage you with questions. And because yeah. it, it seems so interesting to me, so I feel like I have a million questions, but is that a normal occurrence that once people find out what you do for a living, they're like, oh what about this? And what about that?
1: Yeah, very much so. Of course, everyone wants to know as much as they possibly can about, you know, whales, dolphins, fish, penguins, the kinds of animals that live at a SeaWorld park. That's pretty common. But also being a veterinarian, you, you, you commonly get questions about, you know, the family dog or, uh, <laughs> you know, my cat likes to eat toilet paper. Is that bad? Uh, those sorts of questions. So, um <laughs> It, it it doesn't really matter. It's, it's, it's always fun, right? I, I'm, I'm really, really lucky to do what I do.
0: Do you pinch yourself sometimes? Cause to me and maybe most people, I'm sure it seems like you almost have to pinch yourself cause it seems like the dream job.
1: Yeah, very much so. And in fact, like I said earlier, I, I thought I had made it. And in many respects, I feel like I did when I got that first job working with dolphins. Um, then to get to become a veterinarian, then to get to work at SeaWorld as a veterinarian, now to to um, have this this um, unique opportunity um, and experience to be leading our efforts. Yeah, I pinch myself every single day.
0: Oh, I love it. Well, Dr. Dold, I could just prattle on and on, but we're not going to do that because we have so many people, little ones, all different ages, who have a ton of questions that we're hoping you can answer. So are you ready to dive into the mailbag?
1: I'll do my very best. Let's go.
0: All right. So our first one, Doctor Dold, is from Bailey, who is nine years old in Florida, and Bailey wants to know what
1: is your favorite part of your job. Oh, thanks, Bailey. That is a great question. So, um, I I will tell you there are two parts of my job that are my absolute favorite. One uh, is that uh, every single day I learn something new about animals. As I said earlier in the interview, I I, I I work to support people now, so I don't work with animals every single day, but every single day I talk to people about something unique that they have learned about their animals. It, maybe it's a manatee who had a particular injury that our veterinarians were able to, to fix um, in some special way. Um, so, uh, Or perhaps it's a, it's a new kind of fish uh, that is living in one of our aquariums right now, and the team is very, very excited to see how that fish interacts with other fish. Is there's just so many exciting things happening at SeaWorld every single day um, that I love it. Keeps, it. keeps it exciting every single day. And then the second thing that I, that I love about my job is the people that I work with. Um, I don't know what it is. I think it, maybe it's sort of the SeaWorld infection. But uh, the type of people that join our team uh, are a unique type of people. Wildly dedicated to animals. Fun loving. Very, Very smart. Um, and, and we have an incredible time at work uh, doing what we do. So I, I, I could not be more excited. I, don't, I could not have more fun working with the people that I work with.
0: Um, so Terry in Tennessee wants to know what the farthest a fish can swim for migration purposes?
1: Uh, wow. The farthest they can swim is probably farther than what they farther than what they do swim so a couple of migration statistics there's there's a there's an american atlantic eel that uh reportedly uh migrates over the course of its life so not seasonally but over the course of its life uh some ten thousand miles in its lifetime um there are species of fish like white sharks that are essentially sort of continuously migrating up and down uh and around uh the atlantic which is where great whites have been Most of the tagged great whites have been studied swimming thousands and thousands of miles uh, around the Atlantic and moving so seasonally. Um, So, yeah, this idea of migration is pretty cool. One thing to consider when we think about fish migration is that there's another type of migration that happens in the ocean, um, which is a vertical migration. And this migration is, is actually the largest migration of animals, most of them plankton uh uh in in in, on the planet and it happens every single night and it's and it's plankton and copepods other species uh squid things like that that are uh during the day are in very deep ocean waters and then at night come closer to the surface uh and this diurnal migration happens every single day has some seasonal fluctuations but I wanted to share it here because I I think we think of fish traveling like birds and migrating like birds, but remember right. in the ocean environment you can migrate up and down too.
0: All right, next up we have eight year old Benny from Florida, and Benny wants to know. Go ahead, Benny.
1: What do dolphins and whales eat? It's a great question. Uh, so the dolphins and whales that live at Sea World, because there's lots of kinds of dolphins and lots of kinds of whales out there, but I'll talk about killer whales, beluga whales, and bottlenose dolphins. We feed them. A mix of fish. They all eat fish, uh, several different kinds. So, for example, killer whales at SeaWorld eat herring, which is what wild killer whales eat, at least certain types of killer whales. Um, we feed them salmon. Uh, we feed them capelin sometimes. And these are all various species of fish. Bottlenose dolphins and beluga whales, uh, we might add some squid into their diet. Um, they're not going to eat as much salmon because salmon is a bigger fish, but lots of herring, lots of capelin, occasionally mackerel and other species and we do work very hard to make sure again that that we are offering firstly a safe and nutritious diet to the whales and dolphins and the other animals at SeaWorld that eat fish and then um we continue to study and understand so so we make sure that we get our fish from the ocean in the most responsible way we can right we don't want to be contributing to overfishing of some types of fish and we wanna make sure to feed the fish that are healthiest for the particular species, like a killer whale or a dolphin. So that doesn't mean you know we know everybody's diet plan today and it'll be the same one for the rest of time. We know it's gonna change. So we have a nutritionist on staff who studies that and many other things about our animals' diets to make sure that we are learning, adjusting, and doing the best that we can for our animals.
0: Yeah. So Jose from my home state of California, he wants to know, how do you guys determine what to feed the animals?
1: That's a, that's a good question. You know, So for any animal earlier, we talked about fish, um, and what types of fish that we feed to whales and dolphins, but for any animal, um, we always design the food that we're going to give to them, the diet that they're going to get, um, based on our understanding of what that animal is supposed to eat. So what does their wild counterpart eat when they're out there, um, finding their next meal, basically are, you know, are they herbivores? Are they carnivores, uh, are they pishivores eating fish? Um, and then of that, what type of fish do they generally eat? And then we understand the nutrients that are in that natural diet. And then we do our best to either feed them that natural diet or to recreate it in some way that makes the most sense. And so there is a specific field of specialty called zoo nutritionist. And we have a zoo nutritionist. Um, There's only a handful of these zoo nutritionists in the United States. I think it's between 15 and 20 zoo nutritionists, a very small group of specialists, and we're lucky enough to have one that works for us. And they help us um, design these diets for the animals that we care for in our parks. Nice.
0: Next up, Jack, who is six years old in Florida, has an interesting question. How
1: big is a dolphin's nose? How big is a dolphin's nose? So um, it's a great question, um, to, but, but probably requires a little bit of clarification. So bottlenose dolphins' noses, technically, is the blowhole on top of their head. But I think you're probably asking about the rostrum, what we call the rostrum, which is that bottle part on the front of the dolphin's face. And those, uh, that structure is about six to eight inches long and about three to four, three inches around. Um, and they use it to, uh, um, to grab fish and forage for fish, among other things. What they don't use their mouths for, though, is to breathe. Breathing happens through that blowhole up on top of their heads. Great question.
0: All right, next up, Susan from North Carolina. Do you receive funding for your rescue work?
1: Most of the work that we do to rescue and rehabilitate wildlife, like manatees, bottlenose dolphins, California sea lions, um, is uh, it, it, we pay for. Um, and we're lucky and privileged to be able to do that because so many people come to our parks and and then um, when they do they they give us some of their money and we're able to use that money to do our rescue and rehab programs and care for all of our animals and the other things that SeaWorld does. There are a few government programs that are out there um, that uh, that will help organizations like SeaWorld pay for some of the work that they do. So for example, the Florida manatee um, has a state fund that is that um, is that that is designed to help reimburse organizations that care for manatees, rehab manatees, uh, to help pay for some of the work that they do there. But for most, in most cases, and to the great extent, SeaWorld pays for its own rescue work. It's a great question, I'll just add a little bit to it because oftentimes people wanna know if they can support SeaWorld's rescue efforts, uh, maybe by making an additional money con- uh, contribution to us. And uh, we, what we what we do like for folks to do is to contribute to the SeaWorld Conservation Fund, the SeaWorld Bush Gardens Conservation Fund. So they can donate to an organization that will help um, rescue animals around the world uh, by supporting other conservation organizations that are working for those animals.
0: Lila from Florida, who is just four years old, has a question about penguins.
1: Why do penguins live in the cold? Why do penguins live in the cold? That is a great question. I think... <laughs> I, I don't know that they chose to live in the cold, and certainly there are some penguins, like the ones who live in, in Africa, who live in warmer climates. But it's one of those things where penguins just do live in the cold, but in order to live in the cold, they have evolved to have some pretty extraordinary things about their body that enable them to do so. So uh, their feathers, they have a blubber layer, all designed to retain heat and keep them warm in that very cold environment.
0: Well, continuing on with penguins, we have Natalie from Florida. The penguin exhibit is so cool and the penguins are the cutest ever. How do you recreate Antarctica in warm climates?
1: Three ways, three specific things that we do to try to make that environment as close to Antarctica as we possibly can. One is we keep it cold in there. So it is a giant refrigerator um, and that's the easiest way to describe that whole building. Um, In fact it's a little colder than your refrigerator it's probably closer to your freezer Um, second we make snow uh, and we make sure that it snows uh, regularly in there so that the penguins are walking on snow and rocks and other things and last but not least we're here in florida we're in the northern hemisphere antarctica is in the southern hemisphere and the sunlight has a different schedule in antarctica than it does here in florida and so we make sure that the lights in our exhibit are are set up to time and and mimic recreate the light schedule the sun schedule in antarctica as opposed to what we have here in florida every day that's our approach to it and it works pretty well we have a great colony of healthy penguins
0: so stella who is nine years old in georgia she wants to know do seals bark like sea lions
1: Mm, i mean no uh it's sea li- no, so I'm gonna say no. They do make noise. I don't want to make it sound like they don't make noise. And they they kind of have a light roar, but it's not like a lion's roar. Uh, and I'm not gonna to try to recreate the sound here on your podcast. Uh, but <laughs> sea lions are loud, gregarious. They're they're always uh, barking at each other, and, and uh, that's part of their social makeup. Harbor seals. In particular, but most seals are, are a little less so. They're a little more independent. Um, they, they don't they, they certainly haul out in groups, which is when they would vocalize. and usually it's like this sort of guttural growl that they might make that noise. And then there's one report out there of a harbor seal who learned to talk uh, like like, a, like the fisherman that he was living around. and oh, if wow. you spend enough time online, you'll you'll find some of that audio out there it's kind of silly to listen to.
0: Well, speaking of sounds, you're not going to be off the hook because my nine-year-old daughter, Luna, from here in Florida, wants to know how many different sounds do walruses make and can you make a walrus sound?
1: Oh, my goodness gracious. No, <laughs> I'm not going to make a walrus sound. Uh, but they, the walruses do make a lot of different noises, you know, and we, we ask them to come up with sounds. Um, As a way of demonstrating uh, the noises that they can make and the versatility that that they that they have, you know, in in their vocal cords, and also by whistling, they can whistle, purse their lips, and make this whistling noise. Um, They they have a deep baritone growl that they will use, Uh, and we think that that's uh, both a competitive strategy. So walrus um, are, are, are quite can be quite. Competitive and aggressive with each other in their big haulouts, their seasonal haulouts where all of the walrus are on the beach at the same time. Um, and, and then they can communicate underwater too, and make these um, these echoing boom sounds in their throats uh, that are designed to send um, sounds over long distances, and we think is a method of communication between the walruses.
0: Um, Dr. Dole, thank you so much for being here today. I can't let you go without asking our final question that we ask every single person on See the World. What is the best thing you have seen in the world?
1: Wow. What is the best thing that I have seen in the world? Recently, I saw a young man helping an elderly woman across the street. Uh, And that sounds cliche, but I had never seen it before in my life. Uh, and, uh, I saw it firsthand just sort of on my way to work the other day. And so most recently, that's the best thing I've seen. Uh, and it, uh, it made me feel great knowing that we're still out there watching out for each other.
0: I love that. This has been awesome. And we didn't even scratch the surface. We received so many. Guess this means we're going to have to do this again very soon. I learned something again, and I hope you did too. I'm Cindy Simmons, and be sure to join us for the next episode of See the World. As always, don't forget to check out SeaWorld.com, select your favorite park to stay in the loop on all of the great things happening at SeaWorld. Lastly, it would also mean the world to me if you subscribed, left a review, and shared this podcast with all your wonderful friends. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.